You are Locked On Vikings, your daily Minnesota Vikings podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Locked On on vikings i'm your host your pal in the kitty copied off in math class my name is luke braun you can find me on twitter at luke braun nfl you can find the show on twitter at locked on vikings and hey this football season is different and pepsi is here to get you ready for game day no matter how you've been watching this season pepsi is the refreshment you need to power through game day and become a member of the league of football watchers these passionate fans are the real that pepsi fuels because pepsi isn't made for those who play the game it's made for those who watch it pepsi made for football watching go to madeforfootballwatching.com to check out the latest football watching content from pepsi and today there's a whole bunch of film stuff there's a few questions from yesterday's mailbag if you missed that go listen to yesterday's show uh but a few questions that i kind of put a pin in that i wanted to you know take a look at really go in depth and i've got a little bit more insight into that kind of stuff and then other stuff that i noticed while watching the tape and looking at some of the more advanced stats that take a while to come out so let's dive into that right after we talk about a a quick bite of news. Adam Thielen on COVID-19 reserve right now tested positive. The test he took on Sunday, we get the results for that on Monday, and that was positive. Uh, But now, according to Tom Pellicero, he also has had a negative test. This is one we're going to watch a little bit closer because he's Adam Thielen, of course, a little bit closer than if a practice squatter gets it or some rotation, some special teams guy. Uh, But as it stands right now, his status for Sunday is completely up in the air there that could be a false positive it could have been a false negative and uh to guard against the latter the nfl requires that you have more than one negative test before you can come back in but there's still a non-zero chance that adam thielen is totally fine and ends up coming back at the end of the week much like cj ham did last week so still something that we just kind of have to keep an eye on diving into some of the more advanced stat stuff from this game uh, the first thing I want to highlight is that there were only four pressured dropbacks for Andy Dalton in this game. And a big part of that is that the Vikings only chose to blitz eight times and half of them uh, didn't get home. I actually think uh, more than half of them didn't get home. And those dropbacks, those pressured dropbacks actually came on four man rushes where eventually somebody just won. Of those plays, Jalen Holmes had a pressure on two of them. Afadio Denebo had a pressure on two of them. And then Jaleel Johnson and Shamar Stefan each had a pressure. Jaleel Johnson with the sack, of course. Uh, and you might notice that that doesn't add up to four. That's because you can have a pressure dropback where more than one guy gets pressure, right? But it is striking that the Vikings never had any pressures generated with the usual blitzing suspects, the Eric Wilsons, the Harrison Smiths. Those guys weren't rushing the passer, and that's a pretty criticizable decision. That's actually really frustrating. Andy Dalton historically has not been a quarterback that responds well to the blitz. He's not somebody that will scramble out and, you know, extend plays with his legs and do the Aaron Rodgers, Patrick Mahomes thing. He's not somebody that will just, uh, you know, just scramble for extra yardage. He did convert a first down that way this uh, this game, but he's typically not the core kind of quarterback that's going to do that. He's not a quick hitting Drew Brees type. I think Nick Foles is actually pretty good at this. Uh, just like get the ball out quick, get it to his check down or the way Drew Brees does it, the way Tom Brady would always do it is, you know, they would be the best at diagnosing the blitz almost pretty snap and having a hot route and kind of being able to counter it. And then the the goal is just, hey, just don't blitz that guy at all. He is not that kind of person, but the Vikings only blitzing eight times is one of their lower blitz counts 
on the year, especially coming off of a, a game like the Chicago game where they were blitzing Nick Foles a ton on third and long situations where he doesn't have that quick check down. Uh, that worked so well. And to move away from it against a quarterback where that would feasibly work even better is a pretty indefensible decision, I think. And a lot of it is has to do with down and distance. Of course, you know, a lot of when Zimmer likes to blitz is on third down. And a lot of the third downs here were short yardage situations. Thanks to uh, run game problems. A lot of those were Eric Wilson uh, in terms of run defense, at least in grades. Of course, uh, Fadio Denebone, Hercules Mata'afa also had uh, really poor grades, although Mata'afa was only in on six run run snaps. Shamar Stefan didn't have a great game. Jaleel Johnson didn't have a great game. So there were a lot of players that really, really struggled in run defense that caused, uh, you know, first down runs to be seven, eight yard runs, and then you'd have a, a second and short or a third and short, and it's harder to blitz on those downs, of course, because a lot of blitz counters that, you know, would only get three yards suddenly become uh, a viable option, and more if more of their blitz counters are available to them in the playbook, then you might not want to call it as much, but I don't think that works entirely as an excuse because eventually, why don't you try blitzing on a first down or a second down pass? You know, try getting some pressure on Andy Dalton in this way. And in a lot of ways in this game, Andy Dalton just wasn't really asked to do much. He, he just didn't have to work that hard to have successful offense. He had to find the right reads. He had to do his progression. He had to kind of be a, a standard replacement level quarterback that doesn't create mistakes on his own, but he could game manage his way through one and get 300 yards and three touchdowns pretty easily because and a, a huge part of that is that the Vikings didn't blitz, they weren't able to get pressure, and the front, in general, had a pretty abysmal game. Uh, I also want to talk about the coverage stats in this one, particularly Jeff Gladney, who had a really, really rough game, uh, gave up seven catches on 10 targets for 56 yards, two of them were touchdowns, and also Chris Boyd, who had uh, just as bad of a grade um, and also gave up more yards. He gave up six catches on nine targets for 70 yards, including a big 30 yarder uh, and four of those went for first downs and then of course a bunch of the penalties that also kind of sink his PFF grade uh, and are part of the calculus as well. Um, Chris Jones actually did have outside of the really, really bad tackling snafu that led to that Tony Pollard 42 yard touchdown. He did only give up one catch for 14 yards. It was a slant though on third and six. But the Cowboys seemed a lot more content to target Chris Boyd and Jeff Gladney, and uh, it might even be looking for, worth looking further into Chris Jones to see, you know, he's had a few games in a row like this where his coverage stats have been uh, pretty small, or his his uh, coverage stats like allowed have, have been pretty small. It might be worth taking another look at Chris Jones to see if maybe the Vikings lucked into a viable player. But the reason for a lot of these coverage mistakes, uh, some of it is, you know, that, okay, Chris Boyd didn't play well, or, or Jeff Gladney just like didn't play well and there's technique problems and stuff, but some of it is schematic. And I want to get into the schematic problems uh, in, in a little bit here. And I want to get into that schematic stuff. But first, I want to talk to... Okay, so it's Thanksgiving, right? We're we're all going to do... We're going to make some unhealthy choices, right? So we're going to break some diets. And maybe you know, you're going to feel like you want to uh, get a little back into shape, maybe afterwards. Or even if you're trying to get ready for like the New Year's resolution whole thing. But whether it comes to getting or staying in shape, nothing feels as good as that feeling of accomplishment, hitting your fitness goals and feeling great about yourself. An echelon can get you there. Echelon offers the next generation of connected fitness bikes, fitness mirrors, rowing machines, and their all-new Echelon Stride Smart Treadmill. No matter what your favorite fitness activity, Echelon gives you a fun and challenging workout from the comfort of your own home. 
Their world-class instructors are going to motivate you with thousands of daily, live, and on-demand studio-level classes always available when you need them. And unlike their competitors, Echelon's affordable for everyone, and one membership lets up to five family members all work out at the same time. So right now, you can try Echelon Fitness Equipment at home for 30 days. Go to echelonfit.com slash NFL. That's E-C-H-E-L-O-N fit.com slash NFL. Now, speaking of travel season, holiday travel season, if you are traveling, I really hope you're being safe. And in addition to the uh, the extra challenges that being safe during this wild year, during the pandemic and everything, uh, there's also the other the, the normal challenges of being safe, especially if you're going to like do an outdoorsy trip and you want to make sure that you and your family are kept safe. It's got to be the number one priority, right? And that is where Axon Taser comes in. Taser's line of non-lethal self-protection devices are small and they're lightweight enough to carry with you in your glove compartment or your purse or whatever, but they're powerful enough to incapacitate a potential attacker. Guns carry unnecessary risks for you and those around you, and even pepper spray can harm you just as much as an attacker, and it's often ineffective. Taser products are safer and easy to use. Taser devices come loaded with features like laser-assisted targeting and emergency dispatch, which will send response teams to your GPS location upon discharge. Taser is available without a permit in most U.S. states, so you can get the Taser Pulse Plus, which weighs just 8 ounces and fits easily into your waistband, pocket, or purse, even with a holster, or this Taser Strike Light, which combines the usefulness of a high-intensity flashlight that repels attackers with the protection of a 50,000-volt stun gun with promo code NFL at Taser.com. You can save 15% now at Taser.com, promo code NFL. That's spelled T-A-S, not as E-R, dot com promo code nfl restrictions apply see site for details now next part's going to get a little weird so please bear with me but before i get into that i want to make sure that you guys don't miss tomorrow which is going to be crossover thursday where bill ricchetti of locked on panthers is going to come in tell us what's going on with teddy bridgewater tell us what's going on with pj walker who they should start who they're going to be starting and everything else going on is christian mccaffrey going to play what's up with the defense is carolina actually good this year they did just blow out and shut out the lions so uh we'll talk to Bill Ricchetti about all that stuff and see if we can't turn the page on this awful, painful Dallas loss. Now, for the next part, I want to tell you a story. In 1986, the space shuttle Challenger tragically exploded on launch, killing the crew and everybody inside it. It's one of the great tragedies in NASA history, and the actual causes behind this triggered a whole investigation and a whole bunch of controversy in the months thereafter. And what it really came down to, there were a lot of failures there, but one of the major ones came down to a little part, a little rubber ring called an O-ring that was meant to seal one chamber of the rocket from another. And if burning gas got through that seal, it could ignite fuel before it's ready to be ignited and the whole thing goes up in flames. The problem with those rubber parts was the temperature. They weren't really built to work in 30-degree weather, which it was an oddly cold day that day in Florida, and they weren't really built for that. And a huge problem was that uh, a lot of the the people on that team kind of knew about it, and they knew that they hadn't really tested it very much at those cold temperatures, and they knew that if that rubber got brittle, it had a higher chance of failure. And what they did was they basically said, well, if one of these O-rings fails, we'll just kind of shove another one in there and hope they don't fail at the same time. And they started running the shuttle program with that technology for a while. The thing about that is that the O-ring was a criticality one part. And criticality rating is a scale that they would use to kind of assess like how important this part is 
to uh, the safety of the mission. Something with criticality three is a part that's sort of uh, extraneous. It can fail, and we're still going to go forward with the mission. That's that's like a pen, right? If a pen fails, we can still do the mission. Criticality two is for stuff that would jeopardize the mission, like an important scientific instrument. If that fails, then we kind of got to go home or something. Criticality one is this cannot fail, or the whole thing is going to explode. That's, you know, the hull of the ship. That's the engines that is where O-rings were. If an O-ring fails, there is no, yeah, this is still going to be okay. That's a catastrophic failure. And that criticality rating kind of provides an interesting metaphor that I think we can use. And I think we can take lessons from the the crew and uh, the team of engineers working around the, the challenger and the mistakes that they made, which was to not really pay enough attention to a criticality one part, or at least using that scale as a way to kind of assess things. And I think it's really helpful when it comes to NFL coverages. A lot of coverages are built with, you know, criticality one players. If you think about like cover two, the way the Vikings have been running them, a safety in cover two is kind of criticality one. If that guy messes up, if he blows his cover, which Harrison Smith did in this game, if he blows his assignment and somebody gets behind him, there's no backup plan. It's just a touchdown. It's just a blown coverage, breakaway touchdown. Doesn't matter where you were on the field. It'd be an 80 yard touchdown or a 40 yard touchdown. The only difference is where the play started. But if a cornerback messes up in cover two, a lot of times they're only really going to be responsible for short throws. And yeah, they'll get a short gain out of it, but it won't be a catastrophe. That's kind of the advantage of cover two, and it's why the Vikings have been running it so much. But in this game, inexplicably, they ran a ton of cover one. They actually ran the same amount of cover two that they always run. Uh, they have been running about 40%, which I sourced from uh, charting that Arif Hassan did a few weeks ago. I charted this game myself. They ran cover two, I think, like 42% of the time, something like that. Um, that's about normal, but they also ran about 40% cover one. And most of that came in the first half. They kind of moved away from it in the second half, but it still created, I think, too many uh, unfavorable situations like the third down that was the only catch Chris Jones gave up, where he was in full man coverage. I mean, uh, Meg coverage, man everywhere he goes, MEG coverage against Amari Cooper. He's a guy off the street. He's been playing well, but he hasn't been playing that well. I mean, that's this is Amari Cooper. Of course, that's going to be a huge mismatch. And Amari Cooper was, was running a slant. And an Amari Cooper slant is one of the hardest routes to cover in the whole game. And so the, the advantage of cover one, if you remember when we talked about this during uh, during previewing the Bears game, the, the Bears use a ton of cover one because the advantage is if you have, you know, five guys all covering man to man, the five eligible receivers on a play, you have four defensive linemen and a deep safety, you'll notice that adds up to 10 leaves a guy left over that you can do creative things with you can blitz them you can have them come into kind of uh, shallow zones you can have them try to jump a route you can do all kinds of fancy stuff with them but if you're going to blitz with that player and they have a slant called against one of your worst corners then it's not going to matter nothing else on that play mattered it was a third and six i think and it was an easy conversion all that the, the cowboys needed to do was have amari cooper beat chris jones Andy Dalton didn't have to make a, a difficult throw. He didn't have to make any throws under pressure. The offensive line didn't have to win their blocks. Nobody else across the whole play needed to win. If Amari Cooper wins, that's it. And it turned Chris Jones into the criticality one player instead of the criticality three player that the, the Vikings have been making him all season long. And I think what's even more frustrating is how often they called cover one without it being a blitz. They would call cover one and they would have him, you know, try to jump a route or they would double cover somebody or something like that. And you're st still just essentially asking everybody to cover and you're just asking guys to win one on one. And Zimmer has kind of known that he didn't have the horses to do that. And I think a little bit of hubris kicked in, not unlike what happened with NASA in 1986.
Now, there's a whole bunch more stuff I want to get to. I want to talk about the final drive. I want to talk about Brett Jones. I want to talk about why Justin Jefferson wasn't targeted. Uh, And I want to make sure I get to all of that stuff. But first, let's talk about Black Friday. And maybe if we're lucky in Minnesota, we get a white Christmas. And in that spirit, hoping for a white Christmas, Built Bar has an all-new white chocolate bar while supplies last. They have white chocolate cookies and cream and white chocolate salted caramel. Each of those has 130 calories, 17 grams of protein, and four or five grams of sugar. And you get two candy cane brownie bars with every item purchased. Listen, Built Bar is a healthy workout bar. It's loaded with protein. It's loaded with good stuff. It's low in calorie, low sugar, and it's keto friendly, and it's delicious. It tastes like a dessert treat that you really shouldn't be able to indulge in if you're trying to lose or maintain weight. So go to BuiltBar.com and you can get 25% off if you order for Black Friday. Plus, don't forget to use the promo code Locked On to get that additional 20% off. That's BuiltBar.com and you can get 25% off for Black Friday. Plus, if you use promo code Locked On, you get that extra 20% off at BuiltBar.com. All right, so there's three things I want to get to in this one, and I want to make sure I get to all of them, so I'm going to rip through them real quick. And the first one is Brett Jones. So Brett Jones has been kind of a guy that comes up a a lot, and he finally got on the field. He played a full game at right guard, and he played pretty well. He was the uh, highest-graded offensive lineman on the team by a pretty wide margin. He only gives up one pressure. It's pretty good against the run and all that stuff. And I was really curious about this because I didn't have a high opinion of Brett Jones. If you remember what we talked about when we would talk about Brett Jones whenever he would get brought up in a mailbag or something, essentially the problem was that he couldn't climb to the second level. In run blocking, that's a really important thing that guards do in zone schemes, is that they have to go up into the second level, they have to find a linebacker, and if they don't, it could ruin the whole run play. And a lot of zone schemes will ask their guards to do that really, really often. They'll have to do that like on every play or like on every other play, right? So the fact that he couldn't do that, and it was embarrassing. I mean, it was Drew Samia bad up there, right? Where he would go whiff, he would go overrun things, he would end up, you know, swinging his arms out, swinging at air, lunging at people. It was really, really, really ugly, unrosterably so. And that's why he wouldn't make the roster, if you were ever curious about why that happened. And so I was really curious, well, okay, he came in, he got great. I didn't really notice him at all. I, did he figure this out? Is he better at this now? And as it turns out, I charted every play that every every run play the Vikings had, and Brett Jones only climbed to the second level on three of them. They never assigned him to do it, which is an interesting way to attack that. And I didn't really think that was a feasible option, because when you're designing a run scheme, you say, okay, we can't bring this guard to the second level. That's kind of scary. That actually hamstrings a lot of what you can do with the run game. There's a lot of concepts you have to keep in your pocket because you don't trust your right guard to climb to the second level. And that's kind of the, the fate the Vikings were avoiding, but as a fourth stringer, you know, you got to take some lumps, right? That's not going to be a costless thing. So they just kind of figured it out. They just kept him at the first level, and he really, really excelled there. And the run game didn't seem to be that hurt by that. So I wonder if the Vikings would be willing to continue to do that, or if they'll just ask him to go to the second level more often and just accept the failures that come. He did have a pretty bad failure on one of the three times that they did ask him to do it. So I'm really curious to see how that bears out. But this is me telling you to brace yourself. For the moment, when Ezra Cleveland comes back, takes back over at right guard, and Dakota Dozier doesn't get benched. That's what a lot of people ask. Somebody even asked that in the mailbag. I didn't get to it yesterday. Sorry, I forget who you were. Uh, but if you know Ezra Cleveland comes back from injury, or Drew Samia comes off of COVID-19 IR, and then Brett Jones goes back to the bench, that's going to be why, because they can't actually run their whole run scheme 
because of the shortfalls of their right guard. It's going to be an interesting thing to watch. It didn't seem to be as bad of a problem as I was making it out to be. So if Brett Jones ends up being a starting quality lineman and I have to take my L, I'm taking the L on. Okay, I thought that was way more important than it ended up being. But I definitely wasn't wrong about that being a weakness of his. And I don't think the Vikings disagree with me either. The way that they've been behaving with Brett Jones and keeping him on the bench and then when he finally did come in, they still aren't comfortable asking him to do the entire range of typical duties you get from uh, an offensive guard. The next thing I want to talk about, speaking of coaching decisions, is Justin Jefferson. So Justin Jefferson only gets five targets in this game, and a whole bunch of people were like, why aren't they targeting Jefferson? There's actually this kind of growing movement that they're going to Stefan Diggs him, and he's going to get really mad about not getting enough targets or whatever, and he's going to bluster his way out of Minnesota. And then for one, we haven't really seen any evidence of that. I, it's still very arguable whether or not that's actually what happened with Stefan Diggs, or if they said, hey, a first round pick and a whole bunch of stuff for this expensive wide receiver, and the Vikings went like, okay, we'll take the, the $9 million dead cap hit. But without losing ourselves too much in a, a, an argument of the past, let's talk about Justin Jefferson, because in this game, he was bracketed a whole bunch, and the, the tape kind of confirmed this, but another thing that he would often do was be the backside alert, and this is what happened with Stefan Diggs, too. So we're going to go back to the criticality rating thing from the NASA stuff. So a ton of play calling, I think, if you wanted to oversimplify it, can kind of be thought of like rock, paper, scissors, right? You call rock, and I call paper, I'm going to beat you. And when you're designing a run play, a lot of times, you know, you'll design a run play with rock on one side of the play and scissors on the other side of the play. So if they call paper and they beat your main plan, which was rock, you have scissors on the back side of the play. But that's only going to come up every so often. So you only really want to dedicate one player to it. You don't want to waste too many players on the backup plan, right? And the thing is, if they do call paper and you have scissors and there's only one guy who's responsible for winning, that guy kind of has to win. Otherwise, they can just beat your entire play just by running paper and then they only have to beat one guy. So there's a ton of pressure all of a sudden on that guy. So you kind of have to put a good player over there. And that scissors to the, the defense's paper is called a lot of times a backside alert. If you say the play side is where most of the play happens, where kind of plan A happens, on the backside, there's an alert. And Kirk Cousins will have it in his brain to say, okay, if the safety does this or if there's a blitz or if there's a certain coverage or whatever the triggers kind of vary play to play, then okay, turn it and, and now Justin Jefferson is going to be the throw on that play. And sometimes he'll get a target that way. So the thing is, it doesn't really lead to a lot of production, but it does kind of mean, okay, this is our best player, one of our best receivers, right? You know, uh, Jefferson and Thielen are two best receivers. We have to use one of them on the backside of alert, alert so that our whole game plan doesn't die when the defense calls paper. That's part of what's going on with Jefferson. But the other part is the Cowboys just committed to taking him away. They left Adam Thielen one on one and Kirk Cousins is going to take that all day and happily so. And of course, Adam Thielen has this monster game. That's probably what you're going to see if teams continue to do that against Justin Jefferson. And they might because they might say, all right, well, you know, we kind of the, the Cowboys looked like they held him in check reasonably. So they got a win out of that. And maybe teams are going to do that even more. Um, and then you're just going to have like a whole bunch of big Adam Thielen games. And I think if you are like interested in the Viking success and not just interested in guys getting box scores stats, then you're probably going to take that. Like, I know the Vikings will. And uh, the last thing I want to talk about is the final drive. And then we're going to put this whole wretched contest to bed. But on that final drive, a whole bunch of people had questions about the, the final drive yesterday in the mailbag. I couldn't get to all of them. So I'm just going to go play by play on this, right? Because it was a four and out. So the first one was a four yard uh, quick check down pass. They ran one of those triangle reads, which is a concept which is supposed to be kind of cover three and cover two, but Cousins didn't like the look, so he he had a swing pass to Dalvin Cook, hope you can beat a guy in space, he ends up getting four yards, not a huge deal. The second one was a mesh concept where you had, the key was Justin Jefferson running a crossing route over the middle, 
Uh, there was a another crossing route, or I actually think this is sometimes called like a drive concept uh, with a Kyle Rudolph following. But basically, the the key here was Justin Jefferson running a crossing route over the middle, and he gets separation, and he just drops the pass. Third down was the incomplete pass to Thielen. This is probably the one where I would put the most fault on Cousins, though I don't put a lot of fault on Cousins, so they run a flood concept. Big fan of that. Do, do that all game, right? But in this case, the kind of primary read against that coverage was Adam Thielen, and all he has to do is beat Jordan Lewis. He doesn't beat Jordan Lewis. Jordan Lewis kicks Adam Thielen's butt on this play, and I think Cousins probably should have come off of that and either gone to the backside alert or tried to fire one in. Uh, They had pretty good positioning with Irv Smith on the backside of the play. Justin Jefferson might have been able to get something on the backside of the play if you let him enough. Um, And, you know, if nothing else, you could even maybe try the go ball that uh, I think it was Chad Beebe who was running on that play. So I I think there were other options that Cousins could have gone to, and he had uh, a reasonably clean pocket. He could have probably had the time to process that one a little more, but instead he tries to force it into a tight window. It gets broken up. Pretty good coverage, uh, and it was a, a good enough throw. Um, that's Cousins is going to try to force those sometimes. It works out often enough to be defensible, but it doesn't work out here. And then, of course, there is the fourth down. This one's really tragic because they put seven in protection, and the Cowboys rush four, And pressure still ruins this play, which is really, really unfortunate because when you have seven in protection, that means you only have four or uh, three players who can run rounds. So it's really easy to keep them all covered. And there really isn't anybody who has like a good throwing window, a good space to go through. Even Dalvin Cook, who leaks out of protection and becomes the fourth guy, ends up double covered when he gets there. So it's really unfortunate that you have seven in protection. You still can't protect. This happens to the Vikings a lot. I really, really hate when they have seven in protection but they don't have a, a like a viable checkdown option. Dalvin Cook seemed to be like winging it more than like actually running a route. Uh, and and I, I just dislike the play design. I think Cousins did what he could. He couldn't. There wasn't anybody open. He was under pressure. He almost takes a sack, and then he heaves one up that almost gets intercepted. I don't put this one on Cousins at all. And I think you know even the one play I do say, yeah, I guess Cousins could have been a little at fault there. It's still pretty wishy washy. Like he didn't like exactly play horribly on that play, and I think that play is more Adam Thielen's fault than Cousins's fault. So that final drive. Uh, it was just like a failure. One was a failure in play calling. One was a failure from the receiver. The other one was a failure from the receiver and also maybe a failure from the quarterback. Uh, and and first down was a check down. And it's like th- th- there's not like a, a a thing that we can point to. They're like, oh, this happened on every play. Here's the thing you fix. And then that drive goes better next time. Uh, it was kind of a different thing every play, which is really frustrating. And I think what it should, what it kind of comes down to is if you're going to have everything come down to one drive, then you can't really define the game on on four plays. And it's probably going to be more fruitful to look at what led you there in the first place, like the cover one problem, like, you know, the Cowboys bracketing Justin Jefferson. I guess it kind of worked enough, right? Uh, things like maybe not having access to your entire run game playbook. And of course, you know, we've talked a lot about the officiating and all the the impact that that had. I guess that's part of the equation, too. Uh, but I, I think that it makes more sense to focus on the things that caused the most failures, not necessarily the the thing that caused the last one. So we're putting the Cowboys game to bed. We're going to bury the football here, burn the tape. It's a frustrating game and we're going to get out of it. We're going to go try to beat Carolina, get to five and six, and then feel like maybe we're still in this thing. Uh, That means that tomorrow is going to be crossover Thursday with Bill Ricchetti of Locked on Panthers. We're going to talk to him about Teddy and all of that good stuff. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at LukeBronNFL. You have the show on Twitter at LockedOnVikings. I'll see you all tomorrow. And as always, Skull.